on today's episode of Coffee with Mike and Ray, we have CEO of Share Estates, Alan Scheinfecker, um, celebrating 10 years of Share Estates and letting us know how it started, where it is today, and where it's going. Decade in. Thank you for Boom. having me. Welcome. Today, we're going to talk about the 10-year anniversary of Share Estates and 10 years in, but 10 years later, how did it begin? Fun story. So I was actually just uh, in my last year of law school trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Um, knew I wanted to do something with real estate and thankfully had uh, Ray and Rodney, our co-founders, uh, who had been in the real estate industry for 15 years prior to that. Uh, and over a family dinner, we were just shooting some ideas back and forth and landed on this whole concept of real estate syndication being brought online, automating it, creating an exchange for it. And it was something that I fell in love with right away because it was an opportunity to democratize real estate investments. Um, growing up without a ton of resources, without the ability to actually invest in real estate, the concept of being able to go online, invest a hundred bucks, a thousand bucks, $5,000, whatever it was going to be, and own a slice of something uh, seemed really appealing to me. So fell in love with the, with the idea and the rest was really history. All right. And I, I know a lot of people, I guess, relate share estates to crowdfunding and where share estates originally came from. Like, we're, we still get questions. So today is like, how do you guys raise your money? And it started as a crowdfunding platform. And maybe a little bit more on that, like uh, how it started on the equity side, how it transformed and, sure. you know, how we are, where we are today with it. And yeah. So the idea originally was to really be an equity based crowdfunding platform or syndication platform. Uh, crowdfunding is really a buzzword that came around 2012, 2013 with the Jobs Act. Um, but real estate syndication had been around for decades, if not, you know, century plus prior to that. And the, the idea was pretty simple, right? It's straightforward. It's getting a group of people together to pool their capital and to buy an asset, any asset. Uh, it just so happens that the concept of crowdfunding or syndication was more common in real estate. So we set out to create an equity-based platform. Um, and it was kind of right timing, right place. The Jobs Act had just been established. It gave us the ability to go out uh, and really market online to get accredited and potentially non-accredited <coughs> investors. Um, and we were actually at the time in 2014, the fastest qualified regulation offering uh, in history for non-accredited investors. I think it took us about 12 or 13 weeks from the time we applied to when we actually got our SEC Regulation A qualification, which at the time, those types of deals were taking nine to 10 months. So we made a lot of great progress. We were able to get a deal approved and get it launched online. Like all good things, you know, we couldn't plan ahead for everything. So we had to pivot a little bit there and ultimately ended up switching it to a, um, a debt-based debt platform for accredited investors. Uh, but crowdfunding in concept, the idea of, of pooling investors together is still by and large a big part of uh, what we do. I'd say probably 40, maybe even as much as 50% of our deals uh, get done via our syndication platform online. All right. Awesome. If you had a time machine and you got in your time machine and you went to that family dinner and you're the fourth person at the table, what do you say at that table? If I were the fourth person at the table... Not sure I understand. It's, Say that again. It's, it's, it's young Alan, it's Rodney Ray, and seasoned Alan comes in and sits at the table. What does he say? What does he tell his younger self? Um, it's a great question. Uh, That's what we're here for. So, <laughs> so, so looking back, I think um, 
I don't know that I would have necessarily changed anything in terms of how we went about launching the business because everything happens for a reason. Timing is a big factor. Contacts are a big, a big factor. Um, you know, it's hard to say if we had changed any one part of the business or the idea, like would we have met the people that we met when we had met them and where would our business be today? So an example of that is one of our first institutional relationships was a, a Texas-based fund called Ranger, um, who we may not have met had we not hired one of our first capital markets team members here, uh, Kevin Shane. Shout out to Kevin Shane. Kevin Shane. Um, Kevin Shane. Who, who actually helped us kind of pivot from uh, just purely crowdfunding with accredited or non-accredited investors over to institutional capital. And... Um, you know, in hindsight, it's easy to say, hey, we pivoted from non-accredited to accredited and from equity to debt. But had we not gone through that process, I don't think we would have ended up actually probably meeting Kevin Shane, who led us to meeting Ranger, who was our first big institutional account on the debt side that ended up helping us build our track record and ultimately catapulting us into bringing on a ton of other institutional relationships and scaling the way we did. So... I don't know that I would have changed really anything that we did there. Um, would you give young Alan some advice at the table? Would I give young Alan some advice at the table? Like a cheerlead or a... Yeah, I probably, listen, I think I think for anybody coming out of school with uh, some student debt and kind of <laughs> concerns over how they're going to like manage their lives, I probably would have told my younger version of myself not to worry so much and just keep keep my head down and keep working harder. <clears throat> I think the textbook um, version of what they tell everyone in their business is to enjoy the journey, not so much worry about the successes. In the last 10 years, and looking at that journey, what's like the number one event or number one memory that stands out in that journey? Or categorically, like what was your favorite part of the journey? I think celebrating the successes along the way. I think, um, frankly, I don't know that any of us, the founders, the early team members really fully grasped what this company could become when we started it. And so going through and getting those little wins and getting the momentum building up behind us and building the relationships that we built, um, just kind of celebrating those moments as they've come, all of the, the dinners, the, the networking, all of the people that we you know had the opportunity to meet and become friends with. Um, I think enjoying those moments and celebrating those moments were probably my favorite part of the journey. I also personally had a lot of um, personal growth and development, right? Just growing into myself and becoming a more confident operator and believing in my skills and abilities and, um, you know, also being surrounded by people that were smarter than me that I had the opportunity to learn from. So I think all of those kind of intangibles, it's not just always about the money and what you're making at the end of the day, but those intangibles and being able to grow in my professional career was definitely a huge one. Did you think share states would be, like, 10 years later, you'd be talking about share states 10 years later? Like, from when the infancy started, and obviously the business has evolved multiple times, but, like, it's crazy. It's 10 years. From all the different memories and all the different stories I think we all have. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so, it's funny. Um, when, when we first were getting this business off the ground, uh, Ray and Rodney... Um, had at that point been in the title insurance business for 10 years. And so I remember distinctly sitting in my little corner office uh, office desk, um, and I remember actually getting an email, I think it was from Ray, um, 
celebrating the 10 year anniversary of Atlantis or the, or the Atlantis organization at that point in time. Um, this was right around 2013, I believe. And I just thought to myself like, wow, I can't believe it's been 10 years. And we were just in the first, not even the first full year of share estates at that point. So, uh, definitely a crazy concept to be sitting here 10 years later, um, with ups and downs that we've had through the business with, um, you know, the first cycle that I'm going through in my professional career here as well. Um, or maybe the second, depending on whether or not you want to measure COVID. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's been a, a crazy ride and it's mind boggling that 10 years has gone by. Just saying, with the, you mentioned the cycles and all that. And obviously this business has gone through cycles, but also evolving. Um, when share state started, I guess private lending was still hard money loans. Um, and then it turned into this whole new industry, which I still think, uh, hitting its first cycle, it's still, it's some sort of infancy or it's still yeah. in the beginning and hasn't hit its full potential yet getting out of a cycle and seeing what it grows. Like, how have you seen it evolve and change and yeah. like, how has that been? And then how is like the cycle, I guess, COVID and what you've learned. So the evolution has been on a few different fronts. Um, for one, uh, as I mentioned before, we started with individual investors and purely, you know, crowdfunding or syndication, right? Uh, and over time, that grew to institutional fractional capital. Um, and from institutional fractional capital grew to whole loan institutional buyers. Uh, and with each one of those evolutions, our business model changed over time. Um, how we did business, what our documents were, the legal structures, our economics in those deals. Um, and over time, that evolution brought more capital to our space, brought more institutionalization to our space, and ultimately helped us scale, which is great. Uh, it also built a more institutionally better underwritten product um, as the different types of institutional capital came into our space. And then from there, leverage was added to those institutional investors. Uh, this product has truly gone from, you know, borrow money from Uncle Bobby on the corner, uh, true hard money lending to an institutional quality product that's getting securitized, um, that's getting warehoused with large institutional investors and banks. Uh, and ultimately even getting sold to insurance companies. So that whole product, the evolution of our technology, how we do business, how we support our business, that's been super fun. Um, even honestly building all of the, of the technology that we've put together to just manage that process. I mean, some of our earliest, earliest files were, you know, five pieces of information or five documents, right? It was a credit report, an appraisal, uh, maybe a construction budget, um, and a, a brief narrative on the borrower and what their business plan was. Fast forward to today, there's dozens of documents. There's our, our closing packages have become bigger and more complicated. Um, we have best practices, policies around vendors that we work with, uh, insurance that they're required to have, just a ton of boxes that we have to check, which is great because while it seems like it's more work, it's also increased the amount of capital in our space which has enabled us to scale and to really become the national lender that we were as opposed to a smaller regional uh, based lender. Um, as far as challenges, I mean, every business has its challenges. There's challenges that are inherent to the business. There's challenges that come with the market. I think, um, you know, two, two big challenges that kind of jump out to me are obviously COVID. Um, I don't think anybody saw that coming, probably should have at least a few months in advance, but didn't see it coming. Simpsons. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I mean, our business was shut down for probably about seven or eight months when we weren't originating and we were just kind of waiting to see what the market was going to do. Right. 
Um, thankfully, we were able to hold on to the core of our team. The market came back strong. We were able to rescale, uh, hire more people than we had ever hired before. Um, and we were back to the races. And then, of course, rising interest rate environment. I think, you know, it's funny. I we, we go to these industry conferences and we sit on panels and we all share numbers and figures over what's going on. But the reality is the industry is down 70%, 80%. Um, and... I don't know that everybody's necessarily always transparent about that, but it's the reality of where we are. I mean, it's a cycle. It's going to pass. Volume will come back. Um, right now, it's not necessarily about making money. It's about staying strong, looking inward, finding inefficiencies in your business, fine-tuning your policies and procedures, um, You know, working on your org chart, working on your technology, creating a better product so that you can rescale when, when the time comes. Everybody in, in, a, in a professional environment has a skill set. Um, it takes a collaboration of a lot of skill sets to be the CEO of a company. Do you feel like you have one skill set that's greater than the rest that helps you do what you do? Do you love diverse in all of them? How do you feel about your own skills and the success you've built around yourself as a, in relation to those skill sets of operations, sales, and each department you have to kind of head and guide budgets, financials, capital markets? How do you see yourself in that seat? And what part of the company do you see yourself best kind of magnetating to because you like it the most? So um, that's changed quite a bit since when we started the business. Like any startup, you start with three or four people and you're wearing many, many hats. Um, and I used to always make this joke, but it's true, right? My job was essentially to fire myself every time we outgrew a certain process or a certain way we were doing business and we had to hire people, my job was to fire myself. So at one point I was wearing a thousand different hats. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, my ability to wear those hats, my ability to do those things was really all about surrounding myself with people that were smarter than me, that had skill sets I didn't have that I could learn from. And so my job early on was to hustle, to work hard, uh, but also to be a sponge and just really kind of look at the people around me, see who I was surrounded with from my co-founders to early employees, try to be receptive to their thoughts, to their guidance. Um, I didn't always have the answers. So a lot of the thing, a lot of what I used to do is just frankly ask questions and try to like poke holes in certain things to understand exactly how something was supposed to work. Uh, and then over time that evolved as I was learning more, um, I started to develop my own point of view on certain things. So I took all of those experiences and all of those, all of those learnings um, and started to develop my own point of view on certain topics. So whether it was technology, financials, sales, um, underwriting and credit uh, process, any of that related stuff, um, it was an ever changing process flow. I mean, again, I remember, for example, Ray sitting with you uh, back in our old conference room and this was probably when we were maybe 15 people as a company. And we were looking at how a file moves through our system and who it's touching. And um, from point A to point B to point C, who's touching a file and when. And the conclusion we came to was that a single file could bounce back and forth between five or six or seven different people uh, multiple times throughout the underwriting life cycle of that file. And so it didn't create a lot of continuity uh, people didn't know kind of where their job would start or stop. Uh, and ultimately, it made the file take longer to get to the closing table. 
So it's been an evolution. We've been constantly working on that org chart, trying to figure out, and I think we've done that now, thankfully, trying to figure out um, what is the proper org chart? Where should a file move through the process? Let's make sure we have continuity with one person handling a file uh, from a sales perspective, from a processing perspective, so you're not getting too many hands on the same file. But that, that really holds true for all of it. I mean, I've learned so much from everybody around us, from accounting to modeling and uh, financial modeling, as well as um, underwriting and just technology development and product development. So it's been fun. Um, and as far as like what I would say I enjoy the most, probably product development, like the user experience from the time. And we've got different people that we interact with, different users, right? But uh, investors, borrowers, brokers, vendors, what their experience is, is on our technology system from beginning to end is probably <coughs> what I enjoy doing the most. Nice. Yeah, I was going to say over the years, are we seeing Alan? Uh, was, we've traveled a lot, obviously, so every convention, I'm on an airplane on a weekend having fun and having drinks, and Alan's reading like 400-page documents. So just... I don't being, miss that part. <laughs> you don't miss I that don't, part? I don't miss that part. No, no, I think... I think um, Reading PPM, subscription agreements, MLPA agreements is the one part that I don't miss, actually. <laughs> but I think one of the things you do better than anyone is explaining something to somebody. So if someone asks you a question, the, the way you explain either what it is or how it is and how it's done, um, it's pretty thorough. And it kind of helps that person just understand it then and move on, which I think is a great trait to have just in Thank general. You. So and it's helped me over the years because half of the things is being on the sales side more. And learning about the modeling and the financial side, I think we've uh, on the sales side we've learned a lot on that end. So it's definitely been cool over the years learning that. In an industry where the model is to kind of undercut each other, it's cutthroat. Um, accessibility to client bases are out there. How do you find yourself juggling your relationship with your competitors as peers versus? Um, confrontational you know, uh, battle as opposed to a friendly movement towards uh, the crowdfunding and private lending world evolving as a movement? Yeah, so um, again, as we go through this, I kind of find myself thinking back to just prior experiences and conversations we've had. Um, so as a business, right, you, you grow and you write articles, you put out content, you write press releases. And I remember early on uh, in one of our press releases, I don't remember exactly what the topic was, but somewhere in there we were writing something about us relative to competitors. Um, and I actually, Ray, I remember you jumping in and saying, let's not call them competitors. They're our peers in the industry. Uh, and ever since then, I've always referred to them as, peer, as everybody, to, to everybody as peers in the industry as opposed to a competitor. Um, because the reality is we are peers, right? It's We all have a collective responsibility to make sure that this industry is moving forward, that um, we're developing the right product, that we have the right eyes on this industry, that we're having it self-regulated the right way so that we're not dealing with unnecessary uh, external regulation, for example. Um, I don't necessarily think of our competitors as competitors. I mean, we see each other all the time. We're... And I don't mean that in a bad way. I, mean, I just mean they truly are peers. We learn from each other. We help each other. Uh, we see each other all the time at industry events. We speak on panels together. Um, there have been deals that we haven't been able to do that we've been able to refer to our peers. And there have been 
deals that our peers haven't been able to do and they've referred to us. There are uh, people that used to be lenders that we would quote unquote compete with that later became brokers and we've done business with them and vice versa. So um, whether they be white label clients, correspondent lenders, brokers, um, you know, even smaller mom and pop shop style traditional hard money lenders that eventually want to become correspondent relationships. So I think maintaining friendships, maintaining, you know, a cordial and inviting uh, status with anybody in this industry is important. Um, you know, I think as humans, sometimes emotions get the better of us. I think we all have our days where we might react to something or we might be unhappy about something. But at the end of the day, it just comes down to communication. I think if two people can pick up the phone and have a, a conversation with each other and move on. Um, you end up with a, with a decent relationship and a great end. It's no secret that we're going through some financial situations in the economy, with interest rates, the banking systems. Um, growing up, we always heard, in distress is opportunity. Looking forward to the next 12 months, where do you see the distress and where do you see the opportunity? So I think that's all relative and really depends on who you are in that ecosystem. Um, so I'll say some stuff that maybe I shouldn't say, but I'll just be straightforward about it. I think it depends on who you are. I mean, I think if you're a lender, there's an opportunity in a market like this to capture market share, right? It's to somebody's disadvantage, but it's an opportunity. Um, I think there's opportunities around... Uh, looking for opportunistic trades. You know, some people might have a need for liquidity and you're able to pick up paper at a discount. So if you're an aggregator and you see somebody in stress or in need, doesn't mean you have to pay par, right? You could buy that paper for 90, 95, 98 cents on the dollar, whatever it is, it's an opportunity. Um, similarly, I think if you're an aggregator and willing to go through the NPL process, the non-performing loan process, I think there's an opportunity out there to buy discounted paper from aggregators that might not have the infrastructure to see a file through the foreclosure and ultimately the REO process. Um, if you're a borrower, uh, depending on who your lenders are, what your size and scale is, there might be an opportunity to retrade a lender. You know, um, There's always opportunity, right? So. I think no matter who you are in the landscape, you could stop and say, and get down on yourself and say, oh, this is a, a shitty environment, a shitty market. There's no opportunity, volume is down. The reality is there's, there is an opportunity there. You just have to look for it. You have to be willing to go out and find it. You have to be willing to change the way you think, pivot, react, um, but there's plenty of opportunity out there. I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's something that you can look at and just say, I'm going to just keep doing what I've been doing and not change what you're doing and survive, because that's not going to happen. But if you're willing to pivot, if you're willing to think differently, there's an opportunity to survive. All right. Um, so obviously, we've had a lot of fun times. Is there something that sticks out in your head uh, over the years, uh, outside of celebrations, from the traveling to events to milestones even? Maybe like what, what sticks out in your head is like the most fun um, or the, just a memory that like through the 10 years you look back at and you're like, wow, that was, that was a good time. There's been a lot. Um, I mean, I've got funny ones. I've got actual achievements. Uh, you can give me one of each. I mean, something you think was funny over the years. Uh, obviously, achievements are always like good to hear about and how they came across, but 
Yeah, I mean, so so achievements. I think um, you know we built this great business, and we were actually able to monetize our business by selling a piece of it back in uh, 2019, um, which was a huge win. Uh, we got a great partner out of it. Um, my partners and I were able to take some chips off the table and you know move our lives forward, which was great. Um, so that part of it was was fantastic. I think as far as something funny, I mean, Mike, we always travel together. I think uh, for those of you that don't know, Mike was a stand-up comedian. He's now a sit-down comedian, but still has good jokes. So where I can't even there's I can't even think of all of the times we've been out to dinner or at a networking event and. You'd crack a joke at somebody, not in a malicious way, but just Sometimes. like a, you know, they set themselves up. You crack a joke type situation. So um, there's been a lot of those. All right, and then you said that obviously the favorite achievement was that. Um, throughout the years, I guess, um, is there something that, and this could be anything that you would go back to and just be like, I wish I could, I wish I couldn't have done that, or if I could go back, I'll change that, and uh, like. It, it like, why'd I do that or something like that like throughout the years and do you think it had like an effect on the business or on yourself personally yeah that you'd be like damn yeah listen absolutely I think um, everybody makes mistakes right so there are certain things that I would say the business had to go through like what I mentioned earlier right we had to start with regulation A offerings we had to start with an equity platform there was a purpose there was a rhyme a reason and it got us where we are um, but there are definitely situations where kind of as you're growing a business and dealing with the day-to-day -day stress, like, you react to things, you know? Um, not everything always goes according your way. Uh, uh, you never know what somebody else is going through at that moment in time in their day. Um, and I've definitely probably mishandled some conversations, some interactions that, in hindsight, I wish I hadn't, you know? And... I've tried apologizing for them, and I'm very open about that. Uh, but sometimes damage is done and can't be undone. But the reality is you hopefully learn from those mistakes and you move forward. So for the company itself, we're already 10 years in. Like, what do you envision as a CEO for the next 10 years? Like, where do you see share states going? Um, I mean, I guess being in what you said, like uh, – being in one of these uh, markets right now where everything's shifting and the, the word, the term volatility is used and everyone talks about their crystal ball and like what's going to happen? Are rates going to keep going up? What's going to go on with inflation? Will the market soften? Shortage of homes? Is, is the shortage real? Now you see articles coming out. There's a surplus of 5 million homes. Um, what do you see for the next 10 years of share states? And how do you envision maybe growing that? And and if you had the crystal ball, like what would you think uh, – with some more stabilization and, I guess, the future growth. So Share Estates as a brand was never intended to just be one thing. Um, by that, I mean we're not just a lender. We have some bigger aspirations. Uh, it all comes, again, down to timing, right place, right time. Um, but there's several things that we want to do, um, including building a wholesale white-label division, uh, eventually licensing our technology to third-party users, um, eventually taking on third-party serviced accounts, uh, eventually developing an asset management division. So there's at least four or five other business lines that we aren't active in today, per se, that we could be active in. Um, but it all comes down to prioritizing 
what the company needs at any given time and eventually, you know, finding the right time to actually launch those things. So I think two kind of low-hanging pieces there, though, would definitely be the third-party service to count. So we, we self-service most of our loans today. Um, we've, we've dealt with third-party servicers, um, and they're great, but the reality is most of them are set up to, to service residential mortgages, not necessarily business-purpose loans, um, which generally require higher touch. Uh, so we'd love to be able to be in a position to go out to market and pick up uh, third-party service accounts from aggregators and funds that uh, that need the service that want to pay for it. Um, licensing the technology is another big one. Uh, we've spent the last 10 years developing our own proprietary technology. Um, granted, it's been kind of built to do what we need it to do, but with a few tweaks could be super useful for others. And we've done demos of the platform for I don't even know how many different uh, counterparties and they all love it so at some point we do want to turn our attention to that as well all right as a high-ranking graduate of law school do you see yourself going back to law one day or now that you've seen the entrepreneurial world and business world do you just find yourself using that knowledge to build businesses and fund structures and becoming an aggregator and all these other exciting vehicles that are out there in the financial world and real estate world or do you see yourself at one point in time saying you know what I'll go back to my roots and just use my law degree and license to maybe take de-risk that situation and just be an advisor of some sort. I don't think I'd ever go back to that. Um, you know, frankly, I don't think that I necessarily ever wanted to be a lawyer. I think growing up from a difficult financial background, being coming from an immigrant family, I had to pick a career that was going to enable me to have some earning potential so I could support my family, eventually get married, have, have my own family and support that family, and hopefully make a couple of bucks along the way to eventually get into real estate in some way, shape, or form. I think now that I'm there through a lender uh, and also through you know, an owner-developer of real estate, I don't think that I would ever necessarily go back to the, to the law side of it. That being said, I don't regret going to law school. I don't think that I'd be here today. I don't think this business would be here today had I not. I mean, one of the biggest upfront costs to, to launching this business as a syndication platform really would have just come down to the legal expense. Uh, setting up our PPM, filing that Regulation A offering, um, really understanding the ins and outs of what we could or couldn't do online. Um, we would have easily spent seven figures trying to figure that out. So. I think as a bootstrap self-funded company, uh, had I not had that background, we probably wouldn't be here right now. Um, and so, no, I don't think I'd ever go back to being a lawyer. Gladly. <clears throat> Gladly. <laughs> like, never, ever. Um, the, ske the schedule of a fintech CEO must be a very hard juggling act within itself. Um, as a father of three, how do you juggle family time, work time, making sure you kind of get both the right attention without compromising either role that you play in each one of those seats? I don't think it's possible to say that I haven't compromised either one. It's you're kind of, you've got one foot in each camp, so it's, you're never truly fully committed to one or the other at this stage. I mean, my kids are young. They're five, three, and 10 months. Uh, so it's, I'm always missing something, right? Um, whether it's getting my kid on the bus in the morning uh, and if I'm at the office at 7 a.m., I'm missing that. I'm missing wake up. I'm missing breakfast. If I'm staying late, I'm missing dinner, bath time, and bedtime. Um, 
if I'm traveling for a conference, I'm missing my kids at some point. So, and vice versa, if I'm spending time with them, then I'm potentially missing out on opportunities at work. So I think no matter what, you're, it's impossible not to sacrifice something, right? It comes down to prioritize it, prioritizing it. Um, for me, I think, and I don't want to speak for people in general, but I think most people probably feel this way. You're very, you can be very passionate about what you do and love your job. Um, but at the end of the day, sometimes that's a tool to do what you're really intending to do, which is support your family, be there for your kids, be a good parent. Um, and so I think, you know, you get a little bit of diminishing returns, like as you're getting, you know, growing through that curve of success, at some point, you know, each incremental dollar that you can earn in your career doesn't matter as much as spending time with your, with your family, right? So it's just, it's a, it's a balancing act. I think, um, do I wish I could spend more time with my kids? Yes. Am I happy with where I am right now? Yes. Do I want to continue to spend more time with my family, you know, as I get into my 40s? Definitely, yeah. Um, I ask this question often myself, and I get conflicting answers from people. Um, it, within my own circle, whether it's the medical field, the financial field, um, real estate guys, or any kind of entrepreneur versus blue collar labor, and really anything. And the question really becomes, do you take, do you see yourself bringing your children into the business you're in? If, it's, if so, why? If not, why not? Um, great question. So I think first and foremost, it really depends on what my kids want to do. I think, and it depends on where I'm at in my professional career at that time. So, uh, if I'm still doing what I'm doing today, do I think there's a position for them in the lending industry? If they want it, sure. Um, but they're going to have to earn it. I don't want any sort of kind of you know nepotism or even for that matter reverse nepotism to become a factor in their lives. So, um, you know, I grew up working. I think I got my first job at 12 or 13 years old. I want my kids to to get a job as soon as they can. I want them to pay for their own video games to have their own spending cash when they go out with their friends. Um, if as they're growing up, they find a love for finance and real estate, uh, and part of my job will be to show them what I do at the right time, um, but not force it on them, then yeah, absolutely. I would love to work with my kids. It's something I never had a chance to do with my dad, and I wish I had the opportunity. Um, so yeah, I think if they wanted to do that, for sure. Uh, and if not, and they found a love somewhere else as long as, you know, it was something that, I guess I'm old-fashioned in this way, as long as it's something that's going to provide a life and be able to support, you know, in the case of my sons, um, their wives and their, their future family, absolutely, you know, go out and do that. So just depends on the facts and circumstances at that time, I guess. Um, we're, we're as much of a family-oriented business as you can get between good friends, longtime partners, in-laws, and, and connections. And we often spend a lot of time in the office, out of the office, and that's a big juggling act. Um, what are the pros and cons of that? Yeah. So working with family has a lot of layers, right? There's 
our immediate kind of operation, right? It's myself, you, Ray, Rodney. It's, uh, you know, brother-in-laws and brothers and uh, might as well all be brothers, frankly, for how long we all go back and how young I was, at least when you guys came around. Um, that has its its pros and its cons, right? I mean, like, it's it's been great insofar as there's innate trust, right? Like you don't have to worry about what your partner's doing, where they are, how they're spending their time. You know, are they taking corporate opportunities outside of the business for themselves? Or, you know, are they really pouring their, their full, full blood, sweat, and tears into the business, right? That's there. Um, there's also some time where you have to bite your tongue and not say certain things that you would otherwise say to somebody that might not be family, right? Um, so it goes both ways. I think, um, would I change it? No. I think having that level of trust, uh, knowing that any of us could turn to each other for support has definitely been part of our success. Um, and beyond that, there's more layers, right? So like we're, we're a family office or a family-driven business insofar as that like we have aunts, uncles, cousins that invest on our platform. We have uh, other family that invests in real estate. Like it's just, it, there's a lot of family all around, right? It's not just the founders. Um, that too, I mean, listen, it comes with pressure, right? You're, you're taking capital from people that you love and that are relying on you and at the end of the day, you never want to have to look them in the eye and say, hey, I screwed up, or you know, you lost money on your, on your investment, or something went wrong. Um, so it's great because you know, it feels nice when people believe in you and want to invest with you, and you know, it's good for the ego, but at the same time, it also comes with a lot of pressure. So um, I don't think I would change that either, though. I think, again, we've always tried to do the right thing by everyone. You're not going to win every single uh, instance of, of, of anything, right? I don't care what you do in life. Like, you're going to have some losses along the way. But at the end of the day, I think we've done well by people. I think we've done well by each other. And, um, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change that. All right. Now, if you had a gun to your head, who do you like more, me or Ray? You gotta pick <laughs> <one>. <laughs> I think it's facts and circumstances. <laughs> Pick one. Pull the trigger. Pull the trigger. Chicken parmesan involved. Chicken. Um, as of recent, you've kind of been pulled into the sales world, where you historically weren't. Um, again, you have a big hat to fill with the CEO part, but from where I sit, your participation in a majority of dealings outside of the overall scope of things was capital markets, investor relations, and some legal in and outs and some accounting. Looking at modern day where you are involved in the sales aspect of things, you are interacting with borrowers, there's a lot of massaging and trying to get people through their circumstances. How do you, how do you feel about that? What are, your, what, are your, what are the pros and cons of being involved in sales? Because it's a totally different world than you, what you're used to. Do you like it? Do you not like it? Yeah, so it's different. So, I, so I've been on the sales side, but more so on the capital markets end. Um, and that runs a gambit, right? You've got institutional investors, you've got family offices, you've got smaller institutions, you've got retail investors. They're all very different interactions. Um, and 
even more so different from the borrower or broker side of the business. I think it's a different profile. It's a different profile of person, but it's also a different type of sale, right? It's it's on the capital market side, it's a smaller population of people that you interact with that tend to control more capital, especially on the institutional side, as opposed to the borrower side where it's one to many, right? So I think from that perspective, you find yourself having many more repetitive conversations, trying to explain programs, how we work, what we are, um, as opposed to getting deeper into conversations with investors on the capital market side, right? So we could do tens, hundreds of millions of dollars of business with one capital markets investor. And so over years, you kind of develop a very deep relationship with them. And you're able to call each other for favors. You're able to, um, you know, do relationship-based, make relationship-based decisions. Whereas on the borrower and broker side, it's it's a little bit further and fewer in between. But also there's a lot of competition and retrading on the borrower side. So what I mean by that is, you know, especially today as opposed to, let's say, you know, 2015, 16, 17, the size of our industry has grown, right? So I, earlier I was talking about how more institutional capital and more institutionalization of our business was a good thing. It's also come with some downsides, which is our space has gotten very crowded. You know, there are people that are lenders that shouldn't be lenders, um, meaning, you know, they're, they're really brokers, but they've been given a white label platform or a correspondent platform and before you know it, you're cannibalizing your own rates um, with the same, with multiple multiple potential lenders offering the same product that are ultimately ending up at the same buyer. Uh, but now you're undercutting each other, you're getting thinner margins. So th from that aspect, it's become very difficult. Um, I think talking to borrowers, the dynamic between lender and borrower has shifted. So 2015, 16, 17, there wasn't a ton, a ton of competition. Um, lenders really called the shots, the borrowers didn't, really have a lot of bargaining power. Uh, 18, 19, you know, not, let's take 20 out of it, but 18, 19, 21, that shifted. There was a lot of li liquidity in the space, a lot of lenders in the space, that dynamic shifted. So now you found yourself having to chase borrowers, chase brokers, and really compete on leverage and margin. Um, and that's never really a fun place to be. Um, and then I think that dynamic shifting a little bit again now. I think you're starting to see with less liquidity in the space because of a rising interest rate environment, uh, you're starting to see lenders take a little bit more control back from those borrower relationships. Um, all of that being said, I think it just comes down to setting expectations. I think where a lot of people get tripped up, whether it's on the capital market side of the business or the borrower broker side of the business, is false expectations, right? As a sales guy, your job is to sell, 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 make something look really good, right? But if you don't take a degree of neutrality or a degree of like just reality to the, to the scenario, you're basically setting up somebody for false expectations, right? You can't promise somebody you're gonna close in a week if it really takes you three to four weeks to close a file. You can't uh, tell somebody that you're gonna give them X and then retrade them and give them Y. So it's, it's setting expectations, like how quickly are we gonna communicate with you? How long does it take to actually clear a file? You know, What's the process for ordering an appraisal report and the turnaround time for that? Um, if you set expectations the right way going in, then you can really build deeper relationships and get lifelong clients.
And even when you screw up, you've done right by them. You've built that relationship. You apologize and you get them back. Uh, but if you, if you don't, if you don't set expectations and you're very short-sighted in your view, you'll lose, you'll lose in the long term.